Welcome to the Littler Diversity and Inclusion Podcast. Conversations related to the human resource challenges of an ever-evolving workforce. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the second episode of Allied Behavior, a podcast where we will explore inclusion, equity, diversity, and allyship. Today's episode will focus on effective ways to talk about race in the workplace. My name is Chelsea Lewis, and I'm excited to be here with my two colleagues, Kimberly Dowd and Cameron Miller. Kimberly, Cameron, and I practice law at Littler Mendelssohn, the world's largest labor and employment law firm devoted to representing employers of all sizes in all labor and employment matters. I'm an associate in Littler Mendelssohn's Miami office with a passion for promoting diversity and inclusion in the workplace. Thank you, Chelsea. My name is Kimberly Dowd, and I'm excited and thankful to be back again with you and Cameron. I am the office managing shareholder of Littler Mendelssohn's Orlando office and have been practicing labor and employment law for 20 years. As our listeners learned in our first podcast, I am also the mother of two boys aged eight and 12. These conversations are important to me so we can share our stories, shed light on systemic racism and discrimination toward underrepresented communities, take action and make meaningful change. My name is Cameron Miller, and I'm an associate in Littler's Charleston office. I've practiced labor and employment law throughout my entire legal career. As a biracial woman, I have a unique perspective regarding race, equality, and my own lived experiences. I hope to provide an alternative perspective for all of our listeners. Before we talk about how to facilitate conscious conversations about race in the workplace, Let's take a moment to discuss the upcoming Juneteenth holiday and what it means for people of all races and ethnic backgrounds. That's a great idea, Chelsea. Juneteenth is the oldest nationally celebrated commemoration of the ending of slavery here in the United States. It may come as a surprise to some that African-Americans were still enslaved on July 4th, 1776, a date traditionally observed as Independence Day in the United States. Originating in Galveston, Texas in 1865, the observance of June 19th as the African-American Emancipation Day has gained popularity in recent years and provided an opportunity for people of all colors to reflect, rejoice, and realign. We are extremely proud Littler recognizes the monumental nature of the African-American Emancipation Day by observing Juneteenth as a firm-wide holiday. Thanks, Kimberly and Cameron. Last year, I used the firm's observance of Juneteenth as a basis to start conversations in my office about race and the effects that the deaths of Ahmaud Aubrey and Breonna Taylor had on me as an African-American. Wow, Chelsea, how was that experience? It was extremely productive. Many of my coworkers shared that they appreciated hearing my perspective shared their own, and commented that the conversation provided insight as to how our past experiences can shape how we show up in the world today. Chelsea, that's a great segue in today's topic and the challenges we completed. As all of you may recall, during episode one, we challenged ourselves and our listeners to complete one of a series of challenges to help us all build skills to move our community forward through conscious conversations. One of the challenges we presented was a personal reflection where we were tasked with asking ourselves questions from the Talking About Race online portal, 
of the Smithsonian's National Museum of African American History and Culture. The first question was, when were you first aware of your race? Kimberly, what was your answer to that question? Chelsea, this was an interesting question for me. When my parents moved to Orlando, my father worked for a major aerospace and defense contractor. The engineers primarily lived in two neighborhoods, Pine Hills and Oak Ridge. At the time, those neighborhoods were predominantly white. By the time I was school-aged, the faces in those neighborhoods had started to change, and some of our listeners from Orlando may recognize those areas as now being primarily Black or Hispanic neighborhoods. My elementary school was comprised of white, Black, Hispanic, and Asian students. When I attended Evans High School, the student body was comprised of many races and nationalities, and the socioeconomic backgrounds were diverse. From an early age, I understood there were many people who were not like me, and I think that helped me feel comfortable in situations with people of all races when many others were not. When did you first become aware of your race, Cameron? I'd say I became aware of my race at a very young age as well. I attended a predominantly white elementary school where I was one of three biracial children. I can recall my father picking me up from kindergarten on a sunny day and then coming back to school the next day. And that next morning, several of my classmates asked me when I returned to school, who was the man who had picked me up from school? When I explained that he was my dad, the other kids laughed and said that a black girl couldn't have a white dad. And from that day forward, I endured various jokes and comments about my race from being called an Oreo and a zebra to comments that my white lineage must explain my long hair. Chelsea, how about you? When were you first aware of your race? Very early on. I would say kindergarten. My parents had recently moved to Tampa, Florida and put me in a private school where I ended up being the only Black student in my class. I was not aware of the fact that I was different from my classmates until one of them reached out to touch my hair and ask why it felt different. That was something I had never experienced before and something that I didn't hear asked of the other students in my class. Even though the experience was years ago, it ended up repeating itself throughout my younger years and always made me feel ostracized. A point of practice, it's generally never a good idea to engage in unsolicited touching of a Black woman's hair or anyone's hair for that matter. That's a great point, Chelsea. Kimberly, what do you remember from childhood and about how you made sense of human differences? Similarly, what confused you? As I mentioned earlier, I consider myself very lucky to have grown up in a diverse neighborhood, attending public schools with people of varied backgrounds. Even my Girl Scout troop was a blend of people. Everyone was different from their eyes to their hair, to the languages they spoke and the foods they ate. Human differences, diversity was the norm to me. I don't remember being specifically confused about something, Because my schools were so diverse, I was able to learn about other cultures in an open and positive way by simply asking questions of my friends and they of me. But what I've come to learn is that we weren't always asking the right questions or sharing all our experiences. While we talked about why I ate raw vegetables, something my friend Sharonda's dad simply could not understand, who eats uncooked veggies, he lamented, As children, we didn't really drill down into the differences too far. In high school, I worked at Universal Studios in the ride and show department. 
This opened my world up to people who openly discussed different sexual orientations and gender identities. Because of my exposure to so many different types of people in environments which I felt safe over time, I celebrate human differences. But I also understand now that I truly didn't really understand how those differences affect people who are the ones considered to be different because we weren't having those meaningful conversations back then. So I've started those dialogues with my friends and colleagues. So I have a deeper appreciation and understanding of my role and how I can be a true ally. And then I've opened those conversations with my children so they can understand how people are affected in different ways because of the color of their skin, who they love, their beliefs. How about you, Chelsea? As a child, I internalize human differences. For a long time, I felt ostracized because I looked different from my classmates. I was confused as to why I looked different and why I couldn't just have the same skin and the same hair as everyone else. Thankfully, when I shared these feelings with my mother, she reminded me that my differences are what made me special. Today, I'm grateful for how my differences have shaped my development and have helped me become the woman that I am today. Cameron, what childhood experiences did you have with friends or adults who are different from you in some way? I've often had difficulty articulating what it felt like growing up as a biracial child. Because I was biracial, all of my friends and the adults in my life were different than me. Even my own parents, who were each a singular race, African-American and Caucasian, they couldn't understand what it was like to grow up as a half black and half white person. As a child, it was difficult feeling like I didn't understand where I fit in and if I would be accepted at all because I was so different than everyone else. But my parents and extended family taught me that I had a diverse experience growing up that very few people are able to experience and to learn to see the value in that. Kimberly, what childhood experiences did you have with people who were different than you and how do you think those experiences shaped your future? Before I answer that question, Cameron, I just wanted to say I think it's really powerful and something I hadn't necessarily thought about is something that you just said, that as a biracial child, even your parents were different from you. And I think that gives you a really powerful and and unique perspective to bring to this. It's something I hadn't thought of before, and it, it really just impacted me. But my outlook was very much shaped by my community and the people in it, although I am initially reserved. I can quickly adapt and feel comfortable with many people. Because of that, I tend to open myself up to opportunities others may not. Let me give you an example, which happened about eight years ago. I was really struggling. My career had stalled and I was questioning my path in life. I was serving on a committee and met someone, a black male attorney in town. Through our work on the committee, we quickly became friends, and I asked him to have lunch to discuss my situation. He did not hesitate to meet with me, give me advice, seek different job opportunities for me from his contacts, and eventually offer me a job here at Littler. You both know him as Jeffrey Jones, an attorney at Littler who sits on the management committee, but to me, he is my friend, confidant, and mentor. I'm not sure many white women can say the same about a black man. Often we seek out advice from like people, but I think that's a mistake. Because of my childhood experiences, I was open to the possibility of someone who looked nothing like me could help me. And Mr. Jones changed the trajectory of my life. 
I would not be where I am today without him. Chelsea, do you have anything else to add? Sure, but before I do, I want to thank you for sharing that experience, Kimberly. That's certainly eye-opening and something that I did not know, despite knowing both you and Mr. Jones. As it relates to my response to the question, I think most of my childhood experiences were from friends who were from different races and cultures from me. And ultimately, like you, Kimberly, I think it had a positive effect on my life. By being exposed to different races, cultures, and religions, I was able to gain experiences and perspectives that I may never have had the opportunity to do if I were not exposed to such diversity. I decided to pursue a second language because of the diversity to which I was exposed in my early years. Which brings me to my final question. How, if ever, did any adult help you think about racial differences? Cameron, what are your thoughts on that? My parents helped me understand pretty early on that I didn't have to choose a race to identify with. And and from that point on, it was very freeing. Um, Essentially, they taught me that while my friends and family were not quite like me, each person's uniqueness was a strength and not a weakness. And after that, as silly as it probably sounds, I honestly felt like it was a superpower to be biracial. I've been able to more intimately understand the lived experiences of two completely different races of people. And in hindsight, as an adult, I can appreciate these experiences so much because I feel like I have a much deeper understanding of racial identity. Kimberly, how about you? Did any adult help you think about racial differences? Well, Cameron, I think you have many superpowers, but thank you for sharing your perspective as being a biracial woman, because I think that's a wonderful superpower as well. I grew up in a world full of different races. I always thought that was normal. I really didn't talk about race, and I don't recall a specific adult helping me navigate the differences between them. Until last year, I viewed the world through a lens distorted by the belief that because of the diversity I saw around me, I understood the struggles of underrepresented people. That simply was not the case. I was fortunate to have a two-parent household where my mother, although college educated, was able to stay home and raise three children. I did not think about whether there would be food on the table, clothes on my back. I started working at age 16 because I wanted to, not because I had to. On the other hand, the boy sleeping in first period wasn't squandering his opportunities because he was, quote, lazy. He was exhausted from going to school, playing sports, doing his homework, and working a job so he could make a better life for himself and his family. We didn't discuss, and no one taught me, the unwritten rules in the Black community to ensure everyone made it home safely and alive. Conversations like this need to occur so we can no longer be fooled that racism does not exist. And we need to go further. Those of us with privilege or who have had opportunities cannot sit quietly by, content with the fact that we are not racist. Instead, we must speak up, act, and be anti-discrimination anti-racist, anti-homophobic. Those issues are complex. We must take the time to peel all the layers of those onions. Chelsea, what are your thoughts on the issue? Uh, The adults that come to mind for me are most certainly my parents. My father was the first class to integrate his high school in rural Alabama and frequently told me about how that experience affected him. It allowed me to never forget the struggles that my ancestors had to make in order for me to be in the position that I'm in today. 
My mother made it a point to remind my brother and I about the experiences that both she and my father had as young adults in the height of the civil rights movement. She raised me to be proud of my blackness and cultivated opportunities for me to learn about black influencers in a constructive way, which was generally an unsolicited book report. (laughs) Thank you for sharing that, Chelsea. You mentioned your parents' experiences with the civil rights movement. In the grand scheme of things, that wasn't that long ago. I think some people believed because of those efforts, racism had somehow been solved or no longer truly existed. But as the behaviors of purported leaders and the events over the last several years have really highlighted, racism and bigotry didn't just exist in some bygone era. It is alive and it impacts all of us. Thank you both for sharing your childhood and past experiences with me and the listeners so we can understand the history, shed light on the injustices that continue to occur today, and figure out together what we can do in a mindful way moving forward. One of the other challenges we posed to listeners was to watch intergroup anxiety. Can you try too hard to be fair? Cameron, do you think one can try too hard to be fair? I think it's important to ensure that underrepresented populations are presented with equal opportunity. The sheer fact that fairness is still an issue in 2021, to me, demonstrates how important it is to assess your environment to ensure that everyone in the environment is heard and that the folks who speak the loudest aren't the only people with a voice. People have to get comfortable being uncomfortable when it comes to issues of race. If everyone in the room does not feel like they have equal access, then measures need to be taken to ensure that everyone is treated fairly. No one person can speak to how another person feels, and I don't think that we can ever try too hard to ensure that we are being inclusive. Chelsea, do you have an opinion on that? I sure do. I do not think that one can try too hard to be fair as long as the efforts to be fair are genuine. In our last podcast, Cameron mentioned how a conversation about race is often met with silence or creates division because many have been taught race is not an appropriate topic of conversation, which has made thinking about race and talking about race feel taboo. I think there's a big difference between trying to ensure fairness and feeling uncomfortable with the tough conversations that are necessary for growth. Good points, Chelsea and Cameron. I agree. Most of us have anxiety over how people will see us, and this makes us act unnatural, and people pick up on those cues. Conversely, we may have moral beliefs impacting how we approach things. Either way, whether it's couched in terms of fairness, we must have what many believe are uncomfortable conversations. Without them, we all suffer. Cameron, what are some ways that our audience can discuss race in the workplace while minimizing intergroup anxiety? Here are three things that come to mind. First, state your intention. And by that, I mean be receptive to learning and come in with an open mind. Next, prepare before the conversation. Personally, I think it's important to have well-thought-out questions and be prepared to do the work to learn more about your colleagues who do not look like you. Third, acknowledge that no one has all of the answers. There is no right or wrong answers, and as long as you're receptive to learning, I think that you're trying and doing your own part to make the world a better place. Cameron, I think those are all great ways to prepare for and engage in conscious conversations in the workplace. While we have all had experiences with diversity in our formative years, some people may not have. 
Without discussions about our differences and how those differences impact our experiences, the status quo will remain the status quo. It is our job to challenge the status quo in a constructive way through conscious conversations and making the uncomfortable comfortable. Yes, Chelsea, I, I really think it's it's about all of us doing our part. And as I said before, speaking up, standing up and taking action, we just can't sit idly by anymore. Um, and so it, it's really important that we walk the walk, talk the talk and put in the, the time to have these conversations. And while they'll start out uncomfortable, the goal is at the end of the day that we can have the conversations get comfortable with them, not only with each other as we're doing and our listeners, but with our family members and friends as well. Great points again, Kimberly. And that leads us to our next challenge for our loyal listeners. Option one is to Google and read being anti-racist. Option two is to Google and read how to host meaningful D, E, and I conversations at your company. The third option is to Google and watch the danger of a single story. And the fourth option is to ask yourself the following questions for self-reflection. First, what is your workplace doing to build a race equity culture? And second, how can learning about policies, racial groups, and outcomes help support anti-racism efforts? Of course, listeners, our goal is for you to choose one of these challenges before our next podcast. But again, overachievers, please feel free to complete them all. Feel free to take as many of these challenges as you want. Um, We will take these challenges along with you. So when we return in our next podcast, we can discuss what we have learned and experienced, how we can all start and continue to participate in conscious conversations with our families, friends, and coworkers and how to reflect on these conversations that can support racial equity both inside and outside of the workplace. Thank you all for listening. If you'd like to reach out to us, you can get our contact information on the Littler website, or we're also all on LinkedIn. We look forward to hearing your comments. If we share our eyes, then we can open our hearts and minds. The purpose of this program is to provide helpful information for employers, addressing the latest developments in labor and employment relations. It is not a substitute for experienced legal counsel and does not provide legal advice or attempt to address the numerous factual issues that arise in any employment-related issue. To discover other labor and employment podcast series from Littler, the largest global employment and labor law practice, visit littler.com slash podcasts.